want to welcome you again. My name is Pastor Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've got the privilege of walking us through this passage today. We've been walking through Mark's gospel, this biography of Jesus, and today's text specifically is finally this transition we've been talking about where Jesus is now in the days ahead going to be focusing these last days of his ministry on teaching and training the disciples. And so you see him going into these towns, and rather than really embracing the crowds and having them flock to him, he's, he's seemingly trying to uh, avoid them for specific purposes so that he can teach and train his disciples. He's preparing his disciples, his followers, for ministry so that they can carry on after he's gone. And Jesus knows that there are some very significant issues in the lives of his followers. These disciples are knuckleheads. You read the, you, you know, you pay attention to these last several times we've been looking at scripture and just kind of like, oh my goodness, Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth, saying something when nothing needs to be said. They seem to always be arguing. They're getting in a fight on the boat about who forgot the bread behind. And now all of a sudden, here we are. They've come off the mountain of transfiguration. They just had a problem, not able to cast out a demon. Jesus told them this happens by prayer and fasting. He looks at them. He says for the second time now, he foretells that he's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to be delivered over. He's going to be handed over to the hands of men. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. They still don't understand. They're afraid to ask him to explain. And then all of a sudden, they continue on the way. What happens is the disciples are kind of like keeping some space from Jesus just what they think out of earshot, forgetting that he can read thoughts. And they begin arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And you're just like, what is wrong with these people? Now, hopefully at this point in the story, you're beginning to see a little bit of yourself in these disciples as well. It's super easy to open up the word of God. You know, you have quiet time in the morning, you read the psalm of the day, and you find out, you know, you're reading about all these oppressors and persecutors, many of my persecutors, many of my foes, and you're like, yeah, I'm so afflicted, people are the worst, I'm the victim, victim, victim. But actually, the word of God is meant to expose the sinfulness of your own heart. It gives you glorious hope, but the main thing you need to understand when you go to scripture is that if there's a finger pointing outward, as my father used to, father-in-law used to say, there's three more pointing back at you. And so we can sit here and we can talk about how crazy these disciples are, but really, we see ourselves in these disciples a little bit, don't we? So there's one big observation of this text that we're going to break down, and then we're going to give a few applications that can talk about um, really what Jesus is meaning to teach his disciples. The main observation in today's passage is this. Kingdom realities or kingdom experiences cannot be detached from kingdom values. The moment you seek to usher in power and experience Jesus and experience healing and see great moves of God, but you do so apart from the values that Jesus is teaching and declaring and demonstrating, you're going to miss out. Your experience, at the very least, will be hindered. What we see is that when we reject or ignore or allow worldliness to contaminate kingdom values, our understanding and experience of those kingdom realities will be hindered. Have you ever in your life felt like you were missing something. You ever find yourself in church and like the preacher makes a good point, people are like, ooh, wow. And you're just kind of like, was I not listening or did that go right over my head? You can feel that sometimes when people are sharing about, you know, a, a word from the Lord in their quiet time or something that they came across or some big theological nugget or profound providential moment and sometimes there seems to be this space 
many times in those moments we're not understanding because we're not clinging to Christian values. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We've actually seen this with the disciples over and over. They've experienced some amazing things. I mean, King Jesus has demonstrated power and authority over nature, evil, all sickness, death, and they seem to continue to kind of miss the fullness of what he's doing. They don't understand, and so they often are arguing and doubting. And so here we go again. Jesus foretells of his death. It says the disciples did not understand. They're afraid to ask him about it. So what did they not understand? What are they not getting? Because the, def- the disciples definitely had a category for resurrection. They knew that God would raise the dead bodily at the end of the present age. But they were not expecting that one person would rise from the dead, namely the Messiah, and then leave them to continue in a world of brokenness and suffering. This whole aspect of the promised Messiah being handed over to suffer and die did not add up. That's what they weren't understanding, the way of the cross. And so the question is, what is clogging their understanding? Because Jesus is speaking this pretty plainly. And by the way, the Old Testament prophesies about this. And so what is hindering them? I mean, he's even showing them the fullness of his glory. He's showing them his coming back body. And all of a sudden, these guys are still not grasping how the cross flips the world's values on its head. Jesus doesn't want the disciples to misunderstand the values of the kingdom of God. He doesn't want them to miss out because he knows in a moment after Jesus dies and rises and ascends to the Father, he's going to be handing over the ministry of the church and the gospel to these guys. And so he's showing them very early on, if you want to see the kingdom of God ushered in, if you want to see these realities break forth in your life, if you want to experience the power of God in ways you never have before, it will only be attained through kingdom values. So let's look at this, how these two parallel, or let's see how the kingdom realities and kingdom values parallel in two ways in our text. The first is this, the kingdom reality of glory, of greatness, is attained through the kingdom value of servitude. Who in here doesn't want to be great? It's like, of course we want to be great. Who in here doesn't want to experience glory? Who in here doesn't love to be praised? It's like in our DNA. And Jesus says, if that's what you want, here's how you get it. And it's the complete opposite of what we do in our world, isn't it? You want glory, you want greatness, sir. Our whole culture is obsessed with who's the goat. In case, you know, you're totally separated from culture. Goat stands for what? Greatest of all time. Some of you guys are like, whoa, that's what goat means? That's amazing. Is Tiger Woods the goat? Who's the goat in soccer? Wes, Wes just asked me that what, last week, Wes. Who's the goat, Dave? Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, is it Pele? Who is it? Who, who, who's the goat of basketball? Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? And all God's people said, Michael Jordan. <laughs> only, only people under the age of 35 think that LeBron James has something to add to this conversation. <laughs> and even there, in my own words, I'm feeding into the narrative. In our world, our ambitions push us, push us to not just keep getting better, it's not just about getting better. We want to be better than everyone else. It's not enough to be great anymore. You've got to be the greatest. 
In your own life, you wrestle with this. I wrestle with this. You want to be the best mom. You want to be the best dad, the best spouse, the best sibling, the best kid, the best student, the best teacher. You want to be the best boss. You want to have the best employees. You want to be the best employees. You want to be the best looking. You want to have the best sense of humor. You want to be the best athlete. And on and on and on and on it goes. And maybe there's some of you who are like, no, I actually don't want to be because you're aware that people are just better than you at some things. But even there, you probably have a sense of discouragement and maybe even self-pity because you wish you were better. You wish you could be the best. You wish you were a better athlete. You wish you were better looking. You wish you were more intelligent. It's these attitudes that lead us to actually using people rather than serving people. We size up other people in terms of what they can do for us, how they can further our programs, how they can feed our egos, how they can satisfy my needs, how they can give me attention, give me a strategic, strategic advantage. You know what one of the hardest things of being a preacher is? All I'm doing right now is looking into a mirror. It's like I can't even see any of you. <laughs> like my heart is so convicted by these things. The world has infused all of us with this status conscious heart, a desire to dominate and to be served. It's not just a cultural thing either, it's a sin nature thing, isn't it? Your natural human instinct is you want to dominate and you want to be served. You want the last pizza pizza. <laughs> you want the last soda in the fridge. There's a cartoonist and an author who's popular and is well known for saying this. All I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. <laughs> it's like, could I just have people follow me around and tell me how amazing I am and exaggerate it? Oh man, wouldn't that be amazing? And it's nauseating, isn't it? It's nauseating to hear somebody actually say that. It's even more nauseating when you actually consider how true those words are in your own heart. And so here we are, the disciples, after experiencing some amazing kingdom realities seeing incredible glory, hearing about the Messiah now going to suffer and die. And what are they doing? Totally detached from kingdom reality and kingdom value. They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Now let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they're hearing in part and understanding in part what Jesus is saying. That he's going to die, he's going to leave. And so maybe they're thinking, well, who's going to be the leader? So, you know, at the very best... They're trying to figure out who's going to fill each other's shoes. But even there, it's a completely ridiculous argument. It's incredibly untimely, to say the least. And so what does Jesus do? He sits them down in a home, probably Peter's home, honestly, calls them close and says, guys, if you want to be the greatest, if you want glory, if you want to be first, you must be last and the servant of all. Now, how many times have you heard that? How many times, let's, let's say maybe you're a Christian here today who's been a Christian for like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You've heard that the Christian life is one about servitude constantly, and yet you probably still struggle so badly with wanting to be served. It's like, what is the disconnect? Jesus has already said this. Don't you remember? If you want to save your life, lose it. The kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in is flipping everything on its head. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's no place on the way with me. 
There's no place in my church that I'm building. There's no place in my kingdom for self-seeking dominance. Jesus observes the ambitious, jealous, grasping attitude of his disciples, and he calls them to reorient the way they think, to reorient what they value. The disciples in that culture, just like us in our culture, instinctively value power and dominance and being served. But Jesus' kingdom has a different currency. It values lowliness. It values meekness. It values benevolence. It values servitude. Jesus warns. Solomon warns, warns in Ecclesiastes. Friends, you can gain everything in this world you think you want. And it will not give you what you desire. The world is flooded with testimonies of people who work their hinds off to get status and wealth and affluence and influence and fame. And they found themselves to be still unsatisfied. Here's what Jesus is telling his disciples, essentially. You've been your own boss too long. And some of you need to hear Jesus say that to you today. It's time to resign as king of your life. Jesus, the man who lived the truest human life, waited upon others instead of seeking others to wait on him. In fact, in one chapter, he's going to say to them again, essentially the same thing with one new qualification. He's going to say to them next chapter, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Because they're going to argue about this again. They're crazy. And he gives a qualification in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, today's church is plagued. It is a plague. With a sinful perspective that seeks to like sanctify and put on a pedestal this idea of winning. Being number one. Being the best. And I'm not talking like, you know, give everybody a participation trophy in recreational soccer. A lot can be learned about, you know, people being better and failure. Those, those are good things to teach our people. I'm talking about in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, to be number one, to want to always be served, to be the greatest is sub-Christian. The way of Jesus is meant to deliver us from the very attitudes of arrogance and dominance and selfish ambition. And it's meant to free us in a way that actually allows you to find joy and happiness. Jesus is saying, you want to be great. You want to be successful. The way you're doing it isn't going to give you what you want. You want to be happy? Serve other people. Some of you today just literally need to kind of smack yourself in the face and say, why am I miserable? Probably because you're not serving anybody. Probably because you're full of yourself. Probably because you're seeking to build your own kingdom at the cost of anybody. Look again at verses 36 and 37, Jesus gives us an example in this home. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. If you remember, Mark has actually preserved many of Jesus' actual sayings in this biography in Aramaic. Jesus spoke it often. And it's interesting because in Aramaic, the word child and servant are the same word. So actually, in this real-life example, 
Jesus is saying that the disciples must receive his children, other servants and disciples, with the open arms and love with which he was holding that child. There is to be no thought of precedence of who was better than whom. Jesus is saying, receive all of God's people as we do children, with no thought of their accomplishment, no thought of their influence, no thought of their fame, no thought of their gifts, but simply because they are his children. You know, in those days, it's like if I were to put, put up a picture of Charlotte, who, in my opinion, and I'm right, is the cutest girl in the entire world, and we'd be like, oh my goodness, isn't she so cute? And then I'd put up a picture of Emerson, who also, in my opinion, is the most handsome little boy in the entire world. And we'd be like, isn't this amazing? It's like, no, they're both terrors. <laughs> they are amazing. But my son, like, you know, rips pillows, colors crayon on the walls, is, wants to do the dishes, and he's like throwing knives and getting water all over the floors. It's like, they're crazy. And actually, what you need to understand is that we, we, we typically romanticize children today. But in Jesus' day, children were not romanticized. They were actually seen as insignificant. They were seen as overly dependent. They were vulnerable. They were unlearned. They consumed and demanded much more than they gave. And Jesus says, exactly. Receive those kind of people. Serve those kind of people. When we're shaped by the cross, we stop worrying about our status and we willingly serve even the most insignificant, seemingly, most dependent, most vulnerable, most unlearned, most consuming and demanding people. Jesus calls all of us here today, brothers and sisters, to a life of benevolence, to a life of deference, to a life of laying down your so-called rights. You're called to serve in the name of Jesus as his representative, for his sake, with his authority. And then Mark is letting us know in verse uh, 37, when you receive people like this, you are increasing your capacity to receive Christ. You're filling yourself with the Spirit of God. Next, the kingdom reality of success is attained by the kingdom value of unity. If you want to be successful in the kingdom, you can't isolate yourself nor can you isolate your theological tribe, nor can you isolate your church or your denomination or your partisanship. I mean, these just, I was thinking about, about my son with this because it's amazing. It's like <laughs> Jesus tells him, I'm going to die. Transfiguration just happened. They're like, okay, yeah, 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 cool. Don't understand that. I'm not asking. You're asking. I'm not asking. I'm terrified to ask. They kind of like separate themselves and they're like, anyways, where were we? Which one of us is the best? <laughs> Jesus and grace brings him. It's like, guys, if you want to be great, you got to serve. And John then is like, that's really good, Jesus. Also, I saw a guy casting out demons successfully, but don't worry, I tried to stop him. We don't want that happening. It's kind of like, what is going on? It's like my son, Emerson. He, you know, it's like he wakes up first thing, can I have a popsicle? It's like, no, Emerson, you can't have a popsicle, buddy. If you're hungry... You need something that's going to fill your belly, you know, so you won't be hungry again and help you get big and strong and grow. So, like, maybe let's try fruit or veggies, or do you want me to make you some chicken or something? He's like, he's like oh, okay, nods his head, and he's like, can I have ice cream? <laughs> it's like, you're, you're missing it. That's kind of what's happening with these disciples. And so look at verses 38 through 41. John says to him, teacher, we saw coming out, someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. 
The one who is not against us is for us. Notice what the text says. John and the disciples told this guy to stop. And Don rightly emphasized this when he was reading the text. Not because this guy wasn't following Jesus, but because he wasn't following the disciples. This guy was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, let's give John the benefit of the doubt. There were many people in this day who would call on higher powers, higher deities to perform mighty works, but they would fail. Remember earlier we see that Jesus, you know, was accused of being like the devil because he was casting out a demon, and Jesus is like, you know, no one's going to cast out himself in his own household, basically. And so the fact that this guy was successful, Mark is implying this guy was on Jesus' team. And then Jesus says, don't stop this guy. And so you have from Jesus' own mouth this affirmation of who this guy was. And so the problem seemingly wasn't that this guy was a pagan. The problem was that he was in a different group than the disciples. You know, maybe he went to a different seminary. Maybe he was in a different denomination. Maybe, maybe he was, uh, you know, in a different theological conviction area. Maybe he had a different philosophy of ministry. Maybe this guy had a different methodology of engaging the world. Maybe he looked and sounded different. Sound familiar? And what does Jesus say? Guys, how hardened are your hearts? Are you still not understanding? Anyone who is not against us is for us. The guy's casting out demons and liberating people from evil and darkness. Dudes, he's on our team. And so it's like, what are the disciples jealous for? Were they jealous for Jesus' sake or their own? Did they want kingdom success or were they concerned for their own success? Do you remember what happened in Numbers chapter 11? In Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 to 29, we have this account. Moses goes out, tells the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. I love this. The Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. Oh, man. As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. There were two men, however, remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man, it's always the young guys who are super theologically zealous, they just learned something new, can't wait to tell somebody and correct people, guilty as charged, told Moses, hey, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua's like, my Lord Moses, stop them. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Why wouldn't the disciples see a man liberating people from demonic oppression and rejoice? Likewise, why don't we rejoice at the work of God in places that are different than ours? Why is it that so often our first instinct is to draw lines of who's in and who's out? It's pretty ironic here because we're on the heels of the disciples not being able to cast out a demon. And now they're passing through a town and they see a guy successfully doing what they just failed to do. In a sheer reaction of jealousy, they're like, tell that guy to stop. And Jesus says, that guy's not the enemy. You've got a much bigger enemy and you're going to want as many of those guys on your team. The enemy of Jesus and the opponent of the way is the devil himself. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The enemy is not people who are maybe a little different from us. 
So what do we see? We see that in the kingdom, competition and exclusivity, (laughs) I don't know why I'm having a hard time saying that word, exclusivity and jealousy are not compatible with taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Jesus. Those are not values of the kingdom of God. We can't let our preferential alliances or our theological partisanship or even our jealous infused competitive spirit neglect God's greater purposes. I'm going to put a little poem on the screen really quick and we would never actually put the following mantra like in a responsive reading but I wonder how true this refrain actually is. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look as I look, do as I do, then and only then I'll fellowship with you. Brothers and sisters, we all need to be reminded today that God is actively working among circles outside of our own. And the criterion for ministry on the way with Jesus is not style or tradition or denomination, or even preference, but Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified. And anytime that is happening, regardless of differences, we are to rejoice. As followers of Jesus on the way, we are not called primarily as security guards of the kingdom, working diligently to keep people out. Rather, we are called to be servants and ambassadors seeking to bring as many people in as we possibly can. And so maybe a question for your own heart today is, do you act more like a security guard or a servant? The advancement of the kingdom of God is more important than your own personal ambitions and gain. It's more important than your name. It's more important than your denomination. It's more important than your theological club. It's more important than your religious preferences. So let's give a few words of application. First, what do we learn here? We learn that we need to let the cross reorient our realities and our values. This is what was hindering the disciples from understanding. They did not understand how the way of the cross transforms our lives. If you look at verse 30 and 32, you see Jesus foretells his death again, his resurrection. They don't understand, and they are afraid to ask. One pastor says, if the disciples had understood that Jesus was on the way to a sacrificial death for them, and that he was calling them to pick up their cross and follow him, they would have realized how ludicrous it is to push and shove to establish the order of the procession behind him. Because when you're marching to a cross, you stop pushing to get to the front of the line. I truly believe, I tried honestly, decently hard, to think of an example where this is not true, Maybe there is. I just can't think of it. I'm pretty convinced that whatever issue you're facing in your life, you name it, lack of understanding, hindrance to experiencing glorious realities of the kingdom, anger, greed, jealousy, competitive spirit, selfish ambition, depression, whatever it is, name it. I'm convinced you can trace it back to one underlying issue. You haven't yet worked out the implications of the cross in that area of your life. Because when you understand the cross, when you understand that you have been called not only to enjoy the benefits of the cross, but to follow Christ and giving your lives away and taking up your own cross, denying yourselves, then you will be transformed in those areas. Let me give you an example of anger. What is anger? 
It's the result often of unmet expectations or disappointment. Somebody lets you down. Somebody hurts you. Somebody lies to you. Somebody embarrasses you. Somebody took something that belonged to you or hurt somebody that you love. And so what do you do? You lash out. But wait. The cross says... You did all of this and more to your maker, and he forgave you and took your punishment for you. The cross says, since you've been forgiven so much, how could you not forgive? The cross says, those who let you down are not your servants. You're their servant. The cross says, the path that you were on to following Jesus is not one of entitlement. It's one of laying down your life constantly for people. And so we're never going to deal with the sins that so easily entangle us until we get to the underlying issue of becoming cross-shaped. When we realize that our king was and is a suffering servant, and this was the path to greatest joy, that he calls us to follow him on that suffering servitude path of joy, it's at that moment when our lives become cross-shaped that we will all of a sudden live free lives of humility and service and become a community of people transformed by the gospel. Let the cross of Christ reorient your realities and your values in life. Secondly, I got to chuckle out of this next application. Don't put it up yet, Robert. Don't do it. Nobody thought this was cute at the first service. So I don't expect any of you to think this is cute. This is my favorite application I've ever involved in the sermon. Give people who are thirsty a drink of water. How simple is that? I literally mean that. This is an application for you today. I want you to look back at the text. It's in the text. Go to Mark chapter 9. We're looking at verse 40. The one who is not against us is for us. This is after they try to stop him in, getting rid of the demon. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's almost as if Jesus looks at his disciples who are trying to stop a man that, from casting out demons when they should have been giving him a glass of water. I chuckle at this because uh, I love the simplicity of this application that Jesus gives to his disciples. If you want to be a servant, if you want to follow Jesus on the way, one of the best ways to start doing that is something as simple as giving somebody who's thirsty a glass of water. Now, this rung true for me, Abby, you will totally get this. We'll put our kids to bed. They always drag it out. They want to make it like 45 minutes long. I'm tired. My legs are tired. I can't do it. I want to take a longer bath. I want to brush my teeth again. I want you to brush my teeth. I want to wash my hands. I want to change my pajamas. We read our story. We pray together. I want to pray now. No, I want to pray now. I want you to pray. All great things. And then we finally get in bed after like 30 to 45 minutes of this, and without fail, our kids say what, Abigail? Can I have some water? <laughs> Every night! I'll even before we go upstairs, I'm like anticipating it. Charlotte Emerson, can I get you a drink of water? No. Forty minutes later, lights are off, it's time to go to bed. Can I have a drink of water? So I read this passage, and I'm just like, oh, I have the most simplest way to be a servant like Jesus every single night when my overly dependent children say, Daddy, can I have a glass of water? And here's the reality. Your life every single day will be full of opportunities, countless opportunities to do things as simple as give people glasses of water. Maybe it's husbands, you do the dishes. 
Maybe it's kids, you take the trash out before somebody asks you to do it. Maybe you text somebody an encouraging word that you think has been discouraged lately or you saw and you've just been thinking about. Maybe you pay a bill for somebody who you know can't when you can. Maybe you give somebody a ride. Maybe you help somebody run an errand or give somebody a meal or you simply listen to others who are burdened and you bear their burdens with them. You want to know how to be a servant like Jesus? It's quite simple. Just start giving out cups of water. Just start serving. Your natural inclination in all the simplest of ways will be that you want to be served. But if you can just put it in your mind today, when you get the opportunity, and you will get the opportunity the moment you walk out these doors, just get in the habit of giving people glasses of water. And finally, application Pray for God to pour out his favor on other churches in our community. I'm going to ask a question that's not rhetorical. Do you want to see the kingdom of God grow in our community? Do you want to see thousands and thousands and thousands of people converted and baptized and have their lives transformed in our community? Well, then guess what? You better understand, we need a whole lot more than New City Church. Which means, brothers and sisters, you better be speaking very highly of other churches. You better stop gossiping about other churches. You better stop thinking that your church is the best and your ways and ministries here are the best. Let me ask a favor. One of the most uncomfortable things for me, meeting new folks at our church is if they come from another church. I'm like, oh, here comes the cringe. And it's not because I don't think that the Lord sometimes leads people to go to another church. It's because I know I'm probably about to hear a horror story of that church. And I just don't need to hear it. There are horror stories in this church. I expect it. I expect there was a reason why the Lord brought you here. And so do me a favor. If you're going to discover a new city in two weeks, I don't care. <laughs> I don't need to know all the baggage at your other church. I'm rejoicing that it exists and it's meeting needs. And in many ways, God is pouring out its spirit in that place and lives are being transformed, whether you were hurt or it wasn't right fit or whatever. And I would ask that for many of you, if the Lord ever leads you on from this place, whether you move or the Lord just leads you to another church or community, I would hope that you would speak highly of this church. You want to know why? No church is perfect. I, I, there was a, the second pastor ever in this building, which used to be First Southern Baptist Church years ago, was a man named Charles Adams. He had a wife named, named Jenny Adams. And she, she used to, some of you have heard the story, so it's fine, it's worth repeating. There's a young kid, young teenager, who made a big profession of faith. Lord, I ask even now you draw him back to yourself. He's not walking with the Lord today. He stopped coming to church, and Jenny had a way with young people. He wouldn't return my phone calls. I was a youth pastor at the time, and Jenny called him. said, we'll just call his name Brian. Hey, Brian, why aren't you coming to church? And she said, because, and he said, because the church is full of hypocrites. And she said, well, there's always room for one more. You can find an unbroken church and it becomes broken the moment you walk into it. I prayed at the first service 
it's super sad for me to see Charlotte and Emerson fight. I don't love that. Like, honestly, it makes me sad. Now, I know they're kids, and they're just, like, figuring it out. If one pushes the other or they speak poorly, it's like, as a father, I don't love that. I don't love that. Even more so, how do you think the Lord, our Father, feels when his children, made in his image, who, by the way, he calls beloved and chosen and adopted, how does it make our Father feel when we bicker and fight and we're better than you and you're meaner than I am and you're doing this wrong? So brothers and sisters, I'm just saying, the disciples missed this and Jesus needed to fix the way they thought about unity. That guy wasn't against what Jesus was doing. He was for him. And the same thing. There are legitimate distinctions. And sometimes distinctions and differences are fine and appropriate and good. You know, I, I was listening to an R.C. Sproul from one time. R.C. Sproul's known as, you know, he's a Presbyterian with a lot of Baptist friends. And he'd always get invited to these Reformed, like, Baptist conferences. And he'd be like the one guy on the panel. And they'd, it's like six guys who believed in believer's baptism. And here's R.C. Sproul who believes in infant baptism. And some question the panel is always, it was the joke always. And R.C. Sproul, when he would preach on baptism, or even a lot of these panels would say, you know, one of us is wrong. Either the people who believe in infant baptism are wrong, or the people who believe in believer's baptism is wrong. And R.C. Sproul used to go, and we know who's right. He'd point to himself. <laughs> I'm not that confident. You know what's amazing? I believe that the Bible, you know, leans more heavily towards believer's baptism. But are you ready for this? Nobody fire me. I might be wrong. And as Christians with secondary and tertiary issues, we just need to have this category for, you're not going to believe it, you might be wrong. (laughs) There are other churches who do things better than you and get it better than you. And so, oh my goodness, if we want success in the kingdom of God, we better be for each other. We better, as a congregation, start praying for revival in other churches in our community as well as ours. We should be fellowshipping with other churches. We should be praying with other churches. We should be supporting other churches. And this is a value, actually, of our church. It's something that we take seriously, and we're seeking to incorporate more and more. Young adults will be having a conference with a bunch of churches, not in our denomination here, this month. On the first Wednesday of each month for prayer and praise, getting ready really soon, we're going to start inviting pastors from other local churches to come and encourage us. Pray for our congregation. We want to pray for them in their congregation. If we want to see the kingdom grow, we need a whole lot more of the new city. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to bow our heads. And I want you in your own heart to be thinking about how you've been pursuing your own greatness by seeking to be served rather than to serve and ask God to reorient the way you value greatness and what you think about it. I want you to ask God to rid you of selfish ambition and jealousy. Ask God to give you the desire to serve and love people around you. Ask God to pour out his favor on churches in our community. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song about how we are all sons and daughters and we are, just as God has loved us, we're to love each other. And I want us to sing it as a conviction and a prayer and encouragement to one another.
So just spend a few moments in your own heart, respond to God's word today and ask him to reshape your reality and your values with the cross.